0: Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for your participation. Uh, basically, I'm Pejman abdul Mohammadi from the LSE Middle East Center, and uh, we are very happy to have here with us uh, Professor Ali Ansari, uh, who joined the LSE Middle East Center as a visiting professor. He is a visiting professor here right now, but uh, of course, he is professor of Iranian history and the founding director of the institute for iranian studies at the university of st andrews he is also senior associate fellow at the royal united service institute and president of the british institute of persian studies basically so we are very happy to have Ali here today, particularly that is happening after the election of the uh, United States, so I think it will be very interesting um, discussion, hopefully, and the title, as uh, you all have uh, noticed, is Revisiting Rouhani's Election, the Politics of Managing Change in Iran. And uh, I think Ali will, will go to have a uh, twenty minutes around the talk, and then we will go uh, for the Q&A. I'm asked here, of course, to communicate that the Event will be recorded. So, when once that you're in 1A, you might be a bit with the voice. We should try to, uh, to work on technical thing to record everything. And uh, of course, also, it's uh, the, the asking the silence the phones and uh, trying to proceed for the, uh, for the talk. So, I really don't want to steal time from our uh, important guests now and distinguished guests. I pass the word to Ali Ansari. Thank you very much. Please. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, I'm going to... Uh, no, no, wait. Wait till you heard what i said. That's very gracious of you. Uh, I'm going to stand, partly because that light is blinding me as I sit down. Um, but I think standing over here might be a little bit to the side. Turn lot off? Oh, OK. Well, I'm, I'm happy to stand it. It means my watch won't tell me to stand every ten minutes. So... Um, this is a paper that I, I actually wrote uh, after, the, uh, after the 11th uh, presidential elections in Iran back in uh, 2013 and all the hype that followed it. Um, and it's, it was interesting for me actually that so, such was the enthusiasm over that election that in some ways um, this became sort of superseded by various other events that were taking place, particularly this sort of this excitement over the possibility of having the nuclear issue resolved. Um, So it's a little bit late in being published in the form. There was was an abridged version, or a much shorter version, uh, that was issued as a briefing paper. Some of you will find some of it familiar in that sense, but this is a much longer and more detailed uh, account of the uh, election itself. And the reason I was keen to get it uh, published, in a sense, is, as some of you are aware, I'd written uh, quite a long study on Khatami's presidency, The Politics of Managing Change, uh, which originally came out with Chatham House in 2000, and then looking really up until 2005. And one of the things I was very keen or interested in was to look at the parallels that people were drawing between Rouhani's election in 2013 and the reform movement in Khatami back in sort of 1997, 2005, and to see whether these parallels were really justified, uh, how, or if, and how. Um, the intervening, shall you say, the intervening years of the Ahmadinejad presidency had affected politics in Iran. And I was very struck, actually, by the way in which the media in particular, uh, punditry, if you will, other commentators, were very willing, in a sense, to, to, to buy into a particular narrative of Rouhani's election. And this was basically that Rouhani's election, obviously, was a great, uh, both a shock, I mean, although we're getting used to shocks these days, it's not quite the shock it used to be, it was, a, it, was a, it was a surprise, it showed the dynamism of Iranian elections, that Iranian elections were actually something that we could take seriously, uh, that this also provided us with an opportunity, in a sense, for a new opening. And a lot of it was driven, and I was very struck by this, by the fact that many in the West felt, and I think this was probably right, of course, they had, they had missed an opportunity with Khatami, that they had bungled it with Khatami in some ways, and as a result of 9-11 and all the things that happened after that, And that this offered them a second chance, and they weren't going to forego this one. This one they were going to make extra efforts with. But I was also struck by the fact that the Iranians also, certainly the Iranian establishment, if you want to call it the deep state or the shadow state, or it's neither deep nor shadow anymore really, uh, that they were also aware of this need. They were also aware of this need, and they sort of, in a sense, played to it. So the narrative, as it was, really was of this election process uh, that was unpredictable, And therefore, if it was unpredictable, therefore, it had to have a sort of an element of uh, serious democracy about it. Often the words, these words were used uh, rather loosely, that Rouhani sort of symbolized this clean break, in effect, uh, with the preceding eight years, certainly Ahmadinejad. And there is an element, of course, in all these narratives of truth insofar as obviously Rouhani did represent, and those around him certainly did represent, uh, a break with with Ahmadinejad and the preceding administration, and the fact that I even mean, if you talk to the people in Rouhani's administration, they absolutely loathe. They loathe. I mean, they don't just loathe; they really loathe the Ahmadinejad administration. They want to put enough distance uh, between them. But for me, if you looked at the detail of that election process, it struck me that it wasn't quite as different as uh, some people were trying to say that there was much more negotiation in the electoral process than people would have. Uh, accepted, we tended to sort of yeah, not want to look at the detail, of course, because the detail looks a bit messy. I know one Iranian official did say to me once, "You know, the beauty thing about Iran is never look too close. If you look in too much detail, it looks a little bit too messy." Uh, but if you look from a distance, you get a nice broad picture. The sunlit uplands are there, and you, you know you can you can see that uh, you can see, in a sense, what you want to see. And one of my criticisms, really, of of, of the whole. Uh, approach and reception of Rouhani and Rouhani's election and others uh, is that it, it failed to manage expectations properly by elevating the whole election of Rouhani and the individual himself into realms that frankly were completely unrealistic. So the first thing I really want to look at is, is whether we could see uh, uh, Rouhani in a sense as uh, a successor uh, or a sort of a carbon copy or a successor to either Khatani or even Rasanjani. Certainly Khatami and Rafsanjali were pivotal to his success in 2013. There's little doubt about it that Rafsanjani, in a sense, managed the sort of elite backing that they had for him. And, but also Khatami, as he did, of course, last year, was it? this year, I think earlier this year, was basically brought out people to vote for him as far as possible. But one of the things that people often didn't look at in sufficient detail, I suppose, was the way in which the hardline elite was dramatically split over the legacy of Ahmadinejad, and in this way, Rouhani was able to exploit that gap. That what you saw here uh, was an establishment that was divided amongst itself. It was very clear when you looked at people like Nathir Nouri, for instance, who was in the leader's office. He was the one person, I have to say, who predicted Rouhani's victory. And it's quite interesting that right within their leadership office, there was this view that Ahmadinejad was bad news. There were problems, obviously, with the sanctions that were growing, but the main thing about Ahmadinejad's bad news, in a way, was because he had really broken a number of red lines as far as the leadership's uh, the leader's authority was concerned and also his ambitions i suppose in different ways uh, in terms of the political establishment and his challenge that he was he was making on 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 on, on other levels and he was also to see the uh, his his second cousin twice removed uh, i won't mention him donald j trump you know he had this sort of like attitude of basically being able to abuse people at great ease even by the standards of uh, Uh, Iranian politics, which had got extremely vulgar during the Ahmadinejad years, where people abused each other with sort of uh, great relish, Ahmadinejad had taken it to lengths that were really quite dramatic. And we saw that in a number of the, uh, certainly in 2009, during the election debates and others, that a lot of the sort of senior uh, establishment figures, very hawkish in their own right, very hardline and others, even they were uh, basically appalled at this. So there was a sort of a, what I have termed in this uh, paper and others, a sort of a baronial revolt. And this elite fracture was very important in allowing, in a sense, this uh, Rouhani push to come through. Um, but even then, if you look at the negotiation that was going on at the time, it was always, in some senses, a bit of touch and go, although, as we've now seen, probably slightly less touch and go than we would have assumed, because a lot of people, certainly the narrative was, here comes a new face, here comes someone to sort of break through the old uh, hardline uh, visage of the time, now we can start on a nuclear negotiation. We now know from the sources, of course, that the nuclear negotiations, in some ways, particularly between <coughs> Iran and the United States, had started before Rouhani came into office, and that Rouhani himself seemed to be quite shocked about the level of engagement that had already taken place, certainly between Salehi and American interlocutors in Oman. So while I wouldn't want to go so far, by the way, to say, although you know the leadership office would like to say it was all rather fixed and staged from beforehand, I don't think that's true. I think that's a stage too far, it's certainly uh, you know, allows us to pause for thought in a way about this fact that Rouhani's arrival made such a seminal change to the entire process. Clearly some sort of process was already uh, taking place. So the election itself uh, was one which I think was much more managed uh, than people accept. I mean, the Iranian elections, as I've written even the recent one that we've seen, really occurs in three stages. Uh, there is a sort of negotiation beforehand, the actual process of voting, and then there's a negotiation that happens afterwards with normally the Guardian Council, but also the elite. So you saw this at the time. There was a very detailed negotiation that took place to see who would be acceptable and who wouldn't. And it helped, of course, in Rouhani's case, that he was at least articulate, uh, that he was able to answer questions with a degree of sensibility, and that his main challenger, really, at the time, who many people thought was the leadership favourite, was, say, Jalili, who most people found completely incomprehensible. And, of course, the joke at the time was that Iranians would tweet and other things that, you know, Catherine Ashton come back, all is forgiven, we now know what you've had to put up with. I mean, this sort of, like, the the commentary that Jalili would make at a number of his uh, uh, interviews um, made him, in some ways, unelectable, although we have to bear in mind that in Iran, of course, when we talk about, as I said, the the actual voting procedure, the voting procedure is one aspect of the process. Now, what about Rouhani himself? I think the the view of Rouhani himself... Rouhani, when he moved... uh, when he was campaigning for elections certainly campaigned in poetry before governing in prose and the poetry was extremely florid and the prose has proved rather dull Uh, and this contrast has been quite striking for him now let's go to the poetry first of all because I think here we have something that you know we need to be that, that people have in some ways brought in for and I reserve quite a bit of criticism I think for some of the commentariat if I can use that word and also some of the press who took this uh, rather too, uh, uh, too much at face value. But I'll take a couple of examples for you. Um, a well known a well-known journalist in this country, who is referenced in the book, I won't name him, uh, but he's there, uh, among others, all commented at the time, for instance, that Rahani is obviously a deeply civilized man because he's fluent in several languages. And at the time when he came in, they decided he was so fluent that he, he was fluent in six languages. I was always puzzled about what these six languages were. <laughs> I mean, you could easily run out, Um, but a number of journalists took this on board and said, this is a man of, you know, he's a a polymath, he's very, and even more, he did a PhD in Glasgow. And because he did a PhD in Glasgow, this clearly made him uh, British in some way or form, Um, and uh, as a result, he understood politics. Now, the thing about Rouhani, which I always found, and I'm afraid, you know, I'm a stickler for these things, Uh, First of all, he wasn't entirely transparent over where his PhD was from or when he got it. Uh, So in actual fact, he'd been calling himself Dr. Rouhani for many, many years before he actually technically got this PhD. Then he announced on his website that he got his PhD in the University of Glasgow. So naturally, I rang up friends in the University of Glasgow and said, oh, by the way, can you get hold of this thesis? It'd be interesting to see what it is. It turned out it wasn't the University of Glasgow. It turned out that it was the Glasgow Caledonian. Glasgow Caledonian, as you know, is one of the other... Uh, uh, what the post 1992 universities to use the polite term, and he apparently claims to have been in Glasgow uh, in the 1990s, late 1990s, writing his thesis. Um, fine, I don't want to reject that necessarily. However, he was also at the same time apparently in the National Security Council of Iran. So it would have been quite interesting for me that Hassan Rouhani was actually sitting in Glasgow while he was also running sort of national security strategy for Iran at the end of the 1990s. I don't think it's feasible, but nonetheless, you may have done it by distance learning, so fair enough. At the same time, as I said, there were elements there that I thought people could have been a little bit more critical of. The language issue, of course, was very clear, and for those of you who want to have a look, I think basically he's fluent in Persian and a little bit of Arabic. I don't think his English is up to much, but people said that oh, he's fluent in English, but you're welcome to go and have a look at his interviews in English, and you can tell me whether you think he's, he's fluent. The point really was is that too many people were willing to accept this at face value without doing even the most basic checks. And one of the other things, for instance, if you look at it, he made a number of enormous promises at the head of the election in order to galvanise the vote about all the sort of things that reformists were interested in Iran. Uh, One in particular, which, which I found very interesting, was his Charter of Citizens' Rights. Now, this was a very important step in some way. Unfortunately, very few people bothered to go and read this Charter for Citizens' Rights. Um, I'm sorry to say that the latest EU report on Iran actually quotes this as a major step forward. And I do wonder whether they've actually read the Charter for Citizens' Rights. Because if you look at it, first of all, it hasn't actually been ratified yet. It's, what well, it's saying in the EU report is they're very pleased to say that he's moving in the right direction. But this Charter of Citizens' Rights, in a sense, is, to put it politely, a work in progress. It was promised ahead of time. It's taking a very long time to move from gestation to something more serious. And if you look at it and if you read it, rather than just look at the title, you'll find that the citizens' rights are not the sort of rights we would consider inalienable. What they are are basically rights that are afforded to Iranians as long as they don't contravene the tenets of Islam. Now, that is a hell of a condition. And if you look at it, it doesn't really mean a huge amount. Okay, so... What you find with Rouhani is, in terms of his politics, uh, he made a lot of very uh, big promises. I think they were promises that were encouraging. But the point was, is I think expectations were raised, and expectations were raised that may or may not be fulfilled. You saw the same about the house arrest of, obviously, the Green Movement leaders. It was said at the time that within six months they'll be released. I mean, we're still waiting. So there are things about that I think, you know, people could have been a little bit more, I suppose critically engaged with, and I don't think we were, and I don't think we were in part because everything was being dominated (coughs) by the nuclear agreement, and the idea that we wanted to get a nuclear agreement above all else. Now, this is not a bad thing, it's certainly, I would say, a good thing, but I do think it's worrying when that sort of political expedient or that political target really gainsays anything else that you're trying to do. And Rouhani himself, of course, made this sort of argument that the nuclear agreement would be the key that would unlock all the other problems that the country faces. It's an enormous gamble, if you think about it. And, well, after the 8th of November, it's an even bigger gamble, to be perfectly honest with you. But what his argument basically was, was if we get this nuclear agreement sorted out, if we get the sanctions lifted, this will unleash, in a sense, the talents, the ability, obviously, in in the Iranian economy and other things. This is what we have to work towards. This is what we, we rely on. Interestingly from an American perspective, and this is where my other, I suppose my critique of the Obama administration's handling of all this has been, is what they have done is they depend on him being able to make a success of this. So what we have is this curious circular, almost a vicious circle if you will, of dependency between the White House and the Iranian presidency. The Iranian presidency depends on its success on the White House delivering, the White House depends on its success on Rouhani delivering and each side is saying, well, get on and deliver them. But the point is, they're not really actually willing to take the necessary steps to encourage confidence, because there are also, of course, warps on either side that will do their utmost to sabotage. And one of the problems in that sense of the JCPOA, which has been held up as this great diplomatic triumph, and I think as a transactional agreement, it certainly works. I think as a, as a sort of a piece in our time document, it's had its problems, and it, if it stalls, it basically dies, and I think this is the problem that we face now, that he is finding that many of the economic benefits that he might have hoped to gain from it are at the very least going to take longer than he thought. Now, it doesn't help, of course, that classically, in his own way, he indulged in enormous rhetoric about what the JCPOA involved. In his own eyes, it involved um, the complete lifting of sanctions and the breaking of the sanctions regime, which, as we know, is not actually true. So, both in a political sense and in an economic sense, which are closely intertwined of course, what you have found is that Rouhani, in a sense, the election of Rouhani, his, the, the reception of Rouhani in that sense, has led to expectations which I always thought were going to be extremely difficult to deliver. And if you don't manage those expectations well, of course what you're going to get is a level of disappointment which is going to rebound on him. And this is, this is where I think he finds himself now. There was a very interesting comment by the head of the judiciary, I thought it was a very pointed comment, Sadir Larajani, about a week ago, uh, which was, I mean, I thought was uh, mischievous in the extreme, but nonetheless it probably hit the target, because Rouhani had got up at the, you know, the, the annual, whatever it was, uh, press day, whatever in Iran, the celebration of the press, talking about freedom of the press and how we need to have a free press and we mustn't curtail freedom of speech. And Sadir Larajani very pointedly said, he said, I don't know why the president goes off in public and makes these speeches. Because in private, when he talks to us, he always says he wants to keep the press under control. And of course, what he's saying in saying like that, he's saying something that many Iranians believe, which is a problem. That he says something in public, but he does something else in private. That he makes a good speech about civil rights and political freedoms and economic liberalisation on one level, but in private, actually, he's quite happy to basically toe the line as far as the leadership is concerned. So that is... That is a problem, and I don't think we see that collectively in the West, and certainly the uh, journalists and the commentary and others have been really sharp enough to see, really, or critical enough to see uh, where these failings might be. We've been too willing uh, to read into the sources, in a sense, what we want to see, and it's a pity, but we see it all the time. We've just seen it in the United States, of course. It's that willingness to basically... Read the, uh, um, uh, read the data as we want to. I mean, a crucial one if we want to take the American parallel is the rise of the Hispanic vote in Florida without realising that the rise of the Hispanic vote in Florida was really Cuban-Americans who didn't like Mexicans. So, I mean, it's you, know, it's, you know, you have to be a little bit more, you have to dig a little bit deeper than reading the headline news. So this is, I think, a, 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 an issue. Now, the JCPOA... There you,
0: are you up for your time. time.
1: I'm just going to say one final thing about it, because this is a real bee in my bonnet, which I've had a real sort of struggle with a number of people with, and I'm sure not everyone's going to agree with me on this, but I want to draw this parallel, because I think this is one of the big mistakes of the Obama administration, if I have to do it, and that is this nuclear factor. Now, as a number of you know, if you've actually followed anything I've said, actually, is that uh, I'm not a great fan of the nuclear factor, and let me tell you why. So you'll see why I think sometimes political expediency has gotten in the way of a longer strategic vision. Some of you will remember the Rushdie Fatwa. And the Rushdie Fatwa was solved in a diplomatic uh, agreement by 1998. At the time, Robin Cook was the Foreign Secretary here, and Kamal Harazi was the Foreign Secretary of Iran. And it was an interesting diplomatic solution, because what the Iranians said, they said... The fatwa is a religious. First of all, there was a whole decade of discussion of whether it was a fatwa or not, by the way. I mean, we had. It was fascinating for those of us who are interested in Shia jurisprudence. We had to work out whether it was a hukm or it was a fatwa, or whether Khomeini has actually read the book or he hadn't read the book, or what had happened, or whether someone asked him a question or whatever. Anyway, we went round and round the circles. It became a major cause obviously. And finally, in 1998, the Iranian government under Khatami basically said, they said, look, this is a religious edict, and as a religious edict, it is not applicable to the secular government. The government will not pursue the fatwa. Okay, here, interestingly enough, the press reported that the fatwa had been lifted. It hadn't been lifted. What we'd had was a classic diplomatic fudge, so a very good one, and it worked because basically the Iranians went back and said, "Well, we've kept the fatwa in place, but we're not going to pursue it. The fact that we have a 15 million pound bounty on the guy's foot doesn't matter. That's a religious charity. This is what charities do. Okay, so we're going to leave the uh, we're going to leave the." Uh, we're not going to pursue it. And on the British side, of course, they said we can solve it, we can get back, we can open our embassy, the British Council can go, we can do all sorts of exciting things. What that did, of course, in a very interesting way, as a diplomatic solution, is that overnight, basically, the Iranian government admitted, in a practical way, that it is secular. That the Islamic Republic became, through this agreement, effectively, a secular government. Because it said, this is a religious edict. we don't pursue that, that's in the religious sphere. Leave the religious people to get on with that. We are the government. We are the political government of the Islamic Republic. We won't deal with it. Fast forward ten years and you have the nuclear fatwa that nobody's ever seen, by the way. Let's accept Khamenei's word that he's issued this fatwa. Most fatwas have to be written, certainly on an important issue like this, but nonetheless let's accept that Khamenei, by voicing his concerns, has issued a fatwa I always find this very problematic, of course, because, you know, what it means is that Carmen a. can pick and choose whatever of his utterances are religious edicts, which is a pretty powerful position to be in, if he decides one morning to issue, and if you want to go and look at Khamenei's A's he's got a website, and he lists them all, and some of them are very interesting, some of them do with satellite dishes, others do with buying things from Israel, and so on and so forth, but they're written, you know, they're written answers to questions, and you're yet to find anything on the nuclear issue on there, by the way. Nonetheless, he says it's a fact. What I find extraordinary, is that the White House accepts the notion of the fatwa. And so the White House, and Obama in particular, has taken this, because he thinks it's useful for getting his deal done, he's basically said that we have legitimized this religious edict. We accept this as a a form of international policy or international diplomacy. And I would say to American colleagues, I said, listen, if Khamenei wants to issue a fatwa against nuclear weapons or the use of nuclear weapons, great. Fantastic. Let them issue it, it's for his population, it's for his thing. But I don't think it's the place of the US President to basically legitimise it. Because what you have done immediately is within Iran you have signified that Khamenei's factors have some sort of international sanction international legitimacy. And of course it completely overturns the Russian factor in some ways. You know, the Rushdie Fat Boy, obviously, is still legitimate and, and, and valid in that sense. We're completing it. This, to my mind, is the short-sightedness in some ways of diplomacy. I quite understand it in terms of politics, but I think as, as a diplomatic strategy, it's it's wrong. What about the JCPOA and its future now? I think, certainly, because of events two days ago, we have a problem. Okay? And I've always said that the JCPOA works on the basis, not on the basis of of the agreement itself, but on the basis that it leads somewhere. The JCPOA is a process, and you have to understand it as a process, because the idea was, as Obama and his classic Whig, narrative of history, that the arc of history is long, and it leads, curves towards justice, as he keeps telling us, well, it's heard slightly in the wrong way at the moment, but nonetheless, there is a momentum. It has to go somewhere. And at the moment it's not going anywhere. And if it's not going anywhere, Rouhani will not get the economic benefits of what he wanted to do. But but from the other side of the argument, of course, Rouhani himself hasn't made sufficient political or economic changes to the internal structures of the country uh, to actually attract the sort of things that he needs. So I think we're in a sort of a... uh, um, we stalled effectively. I don't think the thing. I, I'm actually not as pessimistic as some that uh, Trump is going to tear the whole thing up. I don't think he needs to, but I am slightly worried now that what's going to happen is that this thing will simply stall. And if it stalls and doesn't go anywhere, then we're going to find ourselves slowly but surely going back to where we were. Although this time, of course, the Iranians will have a sort of a very strong legitimate case to say that you know they've actually delivered on the majority of their own. Uh, of, uh, of their own obligations under the under the agreement, um, I'll leave it at that because I've already gone well over the. You have five, four or five minutes. That's all right. You can I, all right. Uh, did, we, did, we, did I say 20 minutes or did? I, yeah, for the 30. For
0: the 30, you have. Uh, but oh, for right, the 20s, already said, yeah. I've all got right. A couple of students will be
1: asleep anyway. So I want to. Right. I want to keep them awake. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll leave it at that. And uh, but obviously, there's a lot more in there um, uh, that. Uh, if you'd like to ask questions, and I think, well, you've got a good time to ask questions, so I'm sure, I'm happy to provide with any more detail that I can.
0: Well, thank you very much, Ali. It has been wonderful. I think. Uh, a talk here and uh, I think that now we could really go through the, our Q&A section and we have enough time to go in depth in some concept that Professor Ansari has been highlighted. I'm just going to ask to have a brief and precise question and particularly if you kindly introduce yourself before the question. So I would just start now and open the floor. Please. So sorry. Let's break the ice <laughs> somehow. All right. Please.
2: I'm, Gisa, I'm a PhD student in Westminster Business School. Uh, I just wanted to ra- I wanted to make a comment on the press exhibition that you said. Uh, the um uh, government they get back to Sadev and by saying that Rohani always complain about those uh, newspapers, uh, slightly the hardliners who have. Kind of security, mm-hmm. so that was their comment on this issue. Because you want, you were saying that he uh, he does something publicly, but he acts otherwise privately. So this one was the comment. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a question because I had this kind of um, um, I thought that kind of the government of Iran is pro-Trump and. They actually, yeah, because when I went to Iran, I thought that they also comments <coughs> that they wanted Trump to be president rather than Clinton being president. This was what I got from the atmosphere in Iran. And I was very confused how they, um, they are <laughs> yeah. rather they wanted to, uh, Trump to be elected. So do you have any explanation for that?
1: Or it just yeah, I mean, I mean Peshman and I were talking about it. This, I mean, I'm, I agree with you. I mean, I find it also a bit confusing, but I think it's also yeah. a complete misreading of American politics. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, I mean, let me just come back to your comment as well first. I mean, just to clarify on that, what I'm saying is really that Larajani exploits what people think is a perception about him, that he talks a good talk, but he doesn't do as much as he's meant to do. That's the thing, and I agree with you that he targets, you know, those papers there. But at the same time, you know, there, are, there is a sort of anxiety that he, that he hasn't actually delivered on a number of the political things that he's meant to do. But that aside, and I think, you know, Larajani is obviously, tar- you know, it's a very... That's what I was saying. What he said was a very political thing to say. I mean, it was deliberately intended to make him look bad. The thing about Trump is they think he's a... Well, they said Tajir, basically. They think he's a businessman. They think he's a Bazarhi, he's 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 a basically. And so, uh, you know, I was saying, you know, in a sense, the uh, American politics has become Iranian. You know, they, they've elected a, 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 a merchant as their president. And the Iranians, for some reason... I mean, th- these are the things that they think are... Uh, um, they think. Trump is better than Clinton. Clinton they see as a hawk, okay? They see Clinton as someone who'd be tougher on Russia and certainly take a stab in Syria. Trump they see as someone basically who uh, is going to cut a deal and who is, going to, is basically much softer with the Russians and hopefully will be much easier with them in Syria. Now, here's the problem really with this analysis is that Trump has said a lot of things to different people that are quite contradictory. And we won't really know yet about you know, what his situation is. If the sort of people he's considering to be Secretary of State are the people that we think then we're all in a lot of trouble. Okay? And so we need to think very carefully about it, and I think the Iranians, you know, have this slightly, uh, I don't want to say idiotic, but it is idiotic, really, sort of feeling that Republicans are always better for them than Democrats. Okay? And I had exactly the same argument in 2000, where they all said, no, George W. Bush is great, because the Republicans don't talk about human rights they like business, yeah. whereas the Democrats, because of Carter, it's a very, it's a wonderful hangover, actually, from the Shardsfield. The Democrats, you know, just the, you know, JFK was terrible, Nixon was great, JFK was terrible, uh, Carter was terrible, you know, so, on and so on. but the Republicans are great. And it's, it's obviously a very superficial reading. I think in this case, it's a highly superficial reading. None of us really know, and you'll find there's a lot of commentary on the web chat about what Trump will or will not do. The reality of it is, and I've heard a couple of professors also at the LSE, or I think there was one on Newsnight last night and others, and I have to agree with them, the problem is we don't know. The trouble with Trump is that you know, even when you look at his potential cabinet, uh, I must admit one of the first things I did, and I always do, is I looked to see who would potentially be in their foreign policy team, and I didn't recognize a single one of them, like, apart from John Bolton, which I have to say is not encouraging. <laughs> okay, so... You know, we have to wait and see. It might be, he might be this deal-maker, he might pop off to Moscow, he might have a very good relationship with Putin and others, but I don't think that necessarily means, uh, he's already, you know, the Israeli right are also very keen on Trump. So, you know, we have to see where he's going to lay his guts. I think the the Iranian political elite has made uh, mistakes about the United States on a regular level, and it's partly because, you know, one of the great failings in Iran, to be honest, as many other non-European or non is they have very little by way of academic or uh, policy think tanks on the world outside their immediate area. You know, there are no sort of... Re- I mean, there is the Faculty of World Studies at the University of Tehran, but it's not great. You know, I mean, it's, you know, there are these... You know, what you need are these, you know, in terms of a, uh, um, a proper systematic study of, say, Americas or whatever, there isn't really much. And I think they just make mistakes, and I think that's where it comes from. But it's, it's, you know, it's this idea that he's a merchant.
0: Thank you very much. Let's go to the, another one, please. Yeah.
3: Yeah. elections? <laughs> many hours. <laughs> well, not many hours. Myself, at least. That's a good quote of a question. But I was looking for for the election of Rouhani as uh, someone who's proposing himself as a model. Mm-hmm. For the sake of trying to put a stop for the secular and uh, Sunni Shia risk and kind of not putting a stop to it but rather stop using it in advancing their own political uh, agendas and ideology. I'm, I'm, I'm not talking totally I mean, I'm, I'm not blaming the Iranians for it. I know it, yeah. it's do to play this game. Yeah. But... Nothing had changed when Rouhani came. In fact, it continued on rising. Stay. The use of Sunni uh, Shia discussions and using it in, in, in Syria or in Iraq, and that is quite threatening for the community, whether that is in Iran or in Arab world. But there was absolutely no change, whether that is during Khatni's time or al-Ajad's uh, time or later on during Rouhani's time. So I, I really want to. What, what is the difference between the moderates and the more hawkish faction inside Iran when it comes to this religious topic and involving it?
1: In the, in the, in the well, I mean, you, I mean, where, where I'd, I mean where I uh, differ with you, of course, is under Asanjani and Khatami, the relationship with the, you know, the, the Arabs in the Persian Gulf and others was, was actually fairly good. I mean, it was fairly, you know, constructive, certainly under Khatami. I mean, Khatami went round you know, his, in his Quranic Arabic and did some fairly decent speeches, uh, you know, Rafsanjani less so, but the, the relationship for very, very pragmatic and realist reasons because of OPEC and others was actually uh, reasonable. It's under Ahmadinejad that it plummeted and it's also as a consequence of the Iraq war and the divisions that emerge in Iraq and the Saudi fears of Iranian sort of expansion, if you will, in Iraq and then of course this is expanded into Syria. So I think there are all sorts of issues here, but... I think as Pejman, I think, has written himself, you know, what you find is a government in Iran that's very, very divided between different elements. And that really, since Ahmadinejad's period, you find that, you know, the IRGC are taking on a very distinct foreign policy of their own, which the Rouhani administration doesn't have a huge amount of clout over. they tried very hard <coughs> to bring the Syria policy under control and under foreign ministry control, but they haven't had much luck with it uh, because the IRGC see this as their sort of baby, as their, their pet project. So what you find is a very sort of, uh, you know, uh, bicameral, if you will, government, and where they, uh, one group are basically pursuing a very hawkish line, um, uh, the other are talking, you know, at the other side of the mouth about, you know, peace, stability, we want to work together with brothers, and so on and so forth. It adds to that, you know, so there's a u- useful ambivalence, or u- useful, I should say, ambiguity for them where foreign policy is concerned. Uh, But at the same time, I also think that Rouhani, as a sort of the heir to heart of understands that if you do want to have economic development in the region, the last thing you want is heightened tensions with Saudi. I mean, you know, you don't want regional tensions. You want to be able to dampen those down. You need to have much more collaboration. And I think, you know, that problem in Iran hasn't really been solved yet. I mean, they haven't really uh, uh, been able to resolve it. The other aspect, of course, you have to think about is nationalism. nationalism in Iran, and also in the other parts, is, is growing. Now, why is nationalism being encouraged in a way? I mean, as we've seen in other countries, of course, but in Iran is a particular one. And We saw recently, I think October 31st, is, you know, Cyrus the Great Day or something. So now they've instituted this, and people go out en masse to Pasargadae and they shout some very interesting slogans. And for the first time this year, actually, they arrested people, so they must be getting worried. You know, so this nationalism is being encouraged. Why? Because nationalism affords the regime a, a sort of another plank of legitimacy when it's losing its other plank. Whereas, you know, Islam or Republicanism or whatever is going weaker, they can play the nationalist part. So they encourage that. And of course, that's reciprocated, as you quite rightly say, from the Arab side. I mean, there are two, there are two sides this, you know, the, the, to this to, to this debate. And, you know, the Arabs will talk about the Iranians as Safavids or Majus or, you know, all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And the Iranians will respond in kind. You know. And it's, it's getting more and more bitter in that sense. Rouhani himself, you know, on the terms of whether Rouhani is a moderate... Again, all these terms are very relative in Iran. I mean, you know, would Rouhani be, you know, uh, my choice in the current crop? Yes, he probably would be. You know, he seems like a reasonably decent sort of person on one level. On the other hand, you know, he does come from the security and intelligence establishment. You know, he's not a, you know, he claims, of course, to be a, a man of the law and, you know, very literate and so on. So, well, that's fine. But... At the same time, you know he's come through that uh, uh, intelligence establishment, which many people have used and said, "Of course, this shows why he will be successful because he knows how to manage all these things." But when I was talking to Iranian colleagues, you know, for instance, said about this, I said, "So it doesn't sound to me as if he's a moderate." And the classic line comes back: "It depends on your definition of moderate." You know, you've got to be, you know, you've got to understand, and see what he does, and I think the far better term for Rouhani is pragmatist. You know, he works the system and he knows how far he can and cannot go. And the system, and the argument really of the paper here, by the way, is you cannot ignore the eight years that preceded him. Khatani inherited a situation from Rafsanjani. Rouhani inherited a situation from Ahmadinejad. And yes, Ahmadinejad has been barred from running, by the way, but he's still sitting at the, the, the knee of the leader. You know, he's still there as a sort of an advisor in a curious sort of way. And those eight years prior to that have done an enormous amount of damage to the way in which the political structures of the countries work. So Rouhani has inherited a much more difficult situation. That makes it m- more difficult from operate. He's not necessarily in control of all the facets of government, much less so than even Khatami or, 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 or perhaps Afsanjani was. And I quite understand people who say, well, he's not a Khatami. Khatami was a woolly liberal, you know, obviously liberalism has gone out of fashion. He says, uh, uh, you know, we're not... He couldn't, he couldn't handle the politics. But I don't think that Rouhani is a better... Uh, political player in Rasanjani. You know, I think of what in Rasanjali couldn't do it either, at the end of the day. You know. Um, he's probably less corrupt than Rasanjani, but you know maybe a little bit of corruption goes a long way in Iran I don't know, you know it helps I mean, it's not unique obviously, but you know like it's you know he was able to move the system. Sorry, I mean, what's going on you know?
0: Right, please gentle lady. Um, I'm and I want the
2: International Department of Independence my question to you was that um, do you think the arrest of double nationals mm-hmm. in Iran mm-hmm. is to weaken Rouhani's position
1: from the government and from his presidency? And when this will end? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think, and, uh, again, these are one of these narratives that come up. So, you know, say it's either a hybrid government or he doesn't have full control, it's there to weaken. And I think in some ways that's absolutely right. On the other hand, you know, I think for many of us looking at this for the years that we have, we sort of wonder when there will be a president or when there will be someone who will be able to actually confront this in a meaningful sense. Because at the moment, they're not particularly doing anything about it, yeah? Um, they talk, but I don't think they do a huge amount about it. And, um, you know, as, as I said, and I've said this with the Iranian officials as well, I said, if, you know, the greatest asset that, in a sense, the Islamic Republic has if it chose to, if it chose to work with... And if, you, if They talk about the Chinese model. You know, they always talk about the Chinese model. Although it's interesting what the Chinese think of the Chinese model. Um, the uh, the diaspora. You know, get together with the diaspora. The diaspora is wealthy. It's talented. It's by and large would like to do something good. I suppose. You know. Not all of them, but you know, by and large. Why don't you sort of tap into that and do it just as you know, Chinese Americans work in China, you know, one British Iranians or American Iranians, if you arrest them, of course, on various um, charges, which are not clear, um, this deters people, not unnaturally. Um, now, the argument is, of course, is that there are elements within the system who sort of say, well, we don't want these, you know, rich foreign kids in a way coming and taking all our... You know, all, you know, taking all our jobs. But obviously I don't think this is the case. I mean, this is, they sort of say they're coming in and showing off and whatever. I think that's the case. I think the case is really to, A, indicate to Rouhani that he's not in charge, to signify to other people that he's not in charge, but also to send a song signal to the diaspora and others that things are not, uh, uh, things are not as safe as you think. The, the other, I mean I think the, the other thing that's come out, which is you know, again one of these things about the Obama administration, which I think has been a mistake, certainly in, in what they call in the American language in you know, the optics, um, is this idea of ransom. That these people have been taken for ransom And, you know, when you think, by the way, that back in January that they sent one point four billion dollars I think it was one point four billion dollars, certainly a lot, it might be a billion dollars, I think four hundred thousand or four hundred million went to in cash through Holland. I think it was Euro. Not was Euro. Yeah. And they all arrive in these sort of like, you know, plane loads of cash before, you know, Jason was on it. And the Iranians themselves say, well, you know, we've got our payment. We'll let you go. I mean, of course, the Americans are quite right to say this is not a ransom payment. Right? It doesn't look great. You know, it doesn't look great. And, and there are people there in the regime that obviously say we got paid. And you got paid. Um, I'm actually myself astonished that the President of the United States cannot afford a waiver uh, to transfer the money in different ways. But even if the President of the United States has to transfer in cash, you know, what what future for business, I could say.
0: Well, thank you very much. Please. Um,
3: there's
1: been talk
2: uh, that if Trump Mm. uh, begins to tear down the uh, nuclear deal, Mm -hmm. it's likely that Khamenei may begin to put aside Rouhani Mm -hmm. for next year's elections. Uh,
1: Now, I personally don't think it's likely that he will tear down or that Khamenei, but how how likely do you think that is? I mean, I think there's a, a, two sort of distinct processes, and I agree with you, actually. I, the, the, you see, the thing about the JCPOA, which I... If the JCPOA stays as it is now, there's absolutely no reason for Trump to tear anything up. Exactly. It's actually working rather well for, yes. for the Americans. You know, they've dismantled half their stuff. The US sanctions are still in place. It's bloody <laughs> difficult to do business in Iran anyway, whatever you try and do they're arresting dual citizens, I mean there's all sorts of things that actually are doing rather well. So the thing about the JCPOA, as I've said, is that for it to be successful in the long term, it has to move forward. Um, we have to see a gradual lifting of various sanctions, we have to see a gradual moving towards a, what they would say, a normalisation of relations. And that's not going to happen. I don't think it was going to happen last year, I said at the time. You know, the minute Harmony comes out and says, don't think that this means, you know, that we're going to be chums, you know. Now, with Trump in place, of course, it's a different level altogether. And I do think there is something, actually, to think about here. It all depends on what Trump does, to be honest. It all depends on, it all depends on how it goes. But there is this sort of element that Harmony may decide, as, you know, the argument, if you remember, with Ahmadinejad was, that we needed Ahmadinejad to cope with Bush. I always think that's a very bad argument, but anyway, you know, that's the way... Mm. So what they might suggest is actually we need someone a little bit more robust in place as president, but I don't think that has anything to do with the JCPOA per se. I think the way they killed the JCPOA is just by doing nothing. Mm.
3: It'll,
1: it'll, but it'll, but you, it'll, you
3: think he can afford to put aside Rouhani
1: and bring someone else? Well, could, I mean, it depends who it was. I mean, it depends who it was. I Personally, I mean, if he was very clever about it, and he has been quite clever about it, I would keep Rouhani. I mean, he's not doing anything, so I mean, it's fine. Um, what they might do is get rid of Zahri. They might. So on. But even he's doing a fairly good job at least yes. of keeping, you know what I mean? The, the, as long as he's not, you know, Khatami and Ahmadinejad in their own ways challenge the internal order. <coughs> but Rouhani hasn't yet really challenged the internal order. He's made good speeches, as I've said, but he hasn't taken that, that leap. And so at the moment, there's no, in fact, if you were being smart about it, I would leave him in place because there's no reason. And it looks stable and it looks very sensible and there's a lot to be gained by you know, apparently being the bastion of rationality unlike other Western countries. You know, I mean, it's, that's the sort of thing that you can do. You can get away with that. But he would be counting on the fact that Rahani won't make any uh, substantive. Uh, next, uh, uh, please. I
0: just wanted to know if it be more specific. Who are
3: you?
2: Oh, my name is Asifa. I'm just investment advisor for Iranian market. Okay. And um, I was wondering what, uh, what uh, uh, Rohani to be more specific, what he promised, and he didn't do it in taking in mind the upscala hardliner in Iran mm-hmm. and the best that didn't promise what they promised. Uh, because I can see that Rohan is doing a great job. They dropped the inflation rate to the one-digit, and uh, there are so many. Uh, foreign investors and foreign monies coming to Iran. So, what would you be more specific about okay. that?
1: Please? First of all, I mean, the reason the inflation rate's gone down is it's possibly because the country's in a recession. Okay? I mean, that might be an to the reason. It may also be because the oil price has gone down very much. I mean, these oil price issues are not his fault, obviously. But I think if you look at the. There, there are two things you have to look out for in the way <laughs> foreign business is working. You can sell Iran lots of things, okay? But investment in Iran. I suggest it's going to be much more difficult in terms of long-term investment, because various things have to be in place. We're still waiting for the Financial Action Task Force, all these other things that we find very oppressive, actually, in the West, post-2008, these need to be applied in some measure or form in Iran, and I think this is a work in progress. What Rouhani did, of course, is in, even last January, if you go and read what he says, whatever he, he says very clearly, that the sanctions are all going to be lifted, Okay. He didn't actually give the clarity that was required about the sort of sanctions that would stay in place, the fact that sanctions would be suspended. The fact is, for instance, that in all EU contracts, for instance, they have to put in something about snapback, okay? Which the Iranians don't want accepted. In. This is one of the things that's causing a bit of a problem with the Airbus deal, for instance. Um, there are all sorts of things that are basically what we would call friction on the ability of them to to uh, uh, to either sell or invest in the country. And if you look domestically, if you look at the way in which people like Zanganeh uh, and the very good Minister of Economy they have, you know, Nia Th- uh, and others, you know, they're saying that a lot of the structural changes that need to be made, and these are not unique to him, but let's not get it wrong. I mean, these are things that we could say from 1979 or even before that have yet to be sort of resolved within an Iranian economy. That is the creation of a private sector that actually operates as a private sector, not one that is basically tied to some sort of political power or control. So I think there's a lot of promises there that he's made about um, uh, the way in which the political economy will work, which in a sense he, ha- well, not in a sense, which he really hasn't really tackled yet. So there's a lot of good noises. But if you talk to, and I'm sure you go to Iran much more frequently than I do, I have say at the moment, but if you look at the basic, you know, industrial, shall we say, framework in Iran, it's still extremely difficult in terms of business. It's different from buying things. But let me give you also an example of, uh, in terms of economic strategy, in terms of the Boeing and Airbus sale, which is another one of the bees in my bonnet, because I think this is fantastic. And that's, that's great. Okay. So let's say that Iran wants to spend $46 billion buying 220 planes. Was it? 200 planes. I can't remember. Now, first of all, it's a hell of a lot of money to spend on civil airlines. We all like the idea, because obviously you don't want to fly on the Iran Air, which the planes are very old. Although, well, as I've always said to people, the 747s in Iran Air are great because you get leg room. They're from 1977 <laughs> article. But, you know, I can appreciate that they're old. So you want them. But if you're going to spend $46 billion on 200 civilian airliners, the current size of the Iran Air fleet is 46, of which I understand 27 are flying. So what you're doing is you're increasing the size of your fleet by, uh, by tenfold, right? Right? Within that, you want to buy 12 380s. The Airbus 380, you know, the double decker. When you say to Iranians, okay, this is a great idea, who's going to fly in these planes? Where is your market for this? Their argument is, of course, which is a classic argument that goes back pre revolutionary, oh, well, Tehran will become a regional hub. Well, this is all great. I mean, it's an aspirational idea. But if, if you talk to economists, they say it's economic nonsense. You know, that Iran is going to suddenly develop this massive airline industry, overtake Turkish Airways, Emirates, you know whatever, and become a regional hub. Build all the now from a, a, a European business form. It's fantastic news. Airbus is absolutely loving it because at least the twelve three eighty can be produced now. Iran is, you know, we're recycling the money in a classic way as the Shah might have done. You know, to keep them afloat. But it also requires a huge amount of infrastructure building, which I'm sure the French and others will be happy to do. But above all, what it requires you to have. Is a really flourishing tourism and uh, um, you know uh, airline industry to take on Turkish Airways and others. You need a strategy for that in the long term, and I don't think they have one. And this is a problem. You know, it's it, it's basically making economic policy really. It sounds great, and I think you know it appeals to a certain sense of Iranian national pride, of course. But I think also you have to be sensible about it. The Shah, in his day, bought three Concords you know, on a whim because he liked it. And in a sense, you would get away with it. They never delivered them, of course. But, you know, if you remember the Iran Air thing in Piccadilly, always had a nice model. It. Mm. it was the joke the Iranians, as far as you got, is the model. Mm. But they never got the actual planes. But again, that was seen as excessive at the time, even though he had the money. But this sort of purchase, I think, again, what Iran needs is a lot of short-haul airlines to deal with domestic travel and also regional travel, and maybe some of the sort of Far Eastern London and other places. But... You know, they, what was it? Right, they said uh, they can look forward to the time when Iran will be flying to New York. Okay, when? I mean, it's a great idea, but it's not, you know, it's not sensible. I think the, the problems economically are much more fundamental. So that's what I'm saying. I mean, I, I think he's, and I think the people in his administration know exactly what needs to be done. They know exactly what needs to be done, but boy, they're going to find a lot of resistance to getting it done. I mean, I think, and you can see that with the petroleum contract, by the way which has taken forever to get organized, doesn't it? I mean, I'm talking from experience from the 1990s when we had buyback, you know, and talking with oil companies then, we struggled to get a contract. Now they're talking about buyback two. I think it's probably a bit better than buyback two, but it's not exactly the sort of thing that they wanted because of the resistance that you quite rightly say. But, you know, sooner or later, that's got to give. I mean, someone has got to give if they want to get serious investment in the company.
0: Well, please, gentle Lady, please. You wanted a question, I mean, no? no? I'm yes, please. giving
1: you very long answers. I'm sorry, because I think I've got plenty of time. But, uh, please. But I will
0: shorten them. Here. I'm Dana. I'm an uh, economic
1: analyst for the Middle Africa as well, but not going to ask about economics. From where? Uh, from Switzerland. Oh, uh, okay. And I was wondering
2: if, from now on until, let's say, May, there is an increased pressure from the US, especially because of Trump, about whether we can or not just be able to. Deal, cetera, some sort
3: of mm-hmm. what would the Iranian
1: do? What would Iran um, uh, I mean, you know, what they say about what the uh, uh, Trump government could do, the administration could do, I mean what they can do is very simple actually in one way, and that is to rescind the executive orders that Obama has put in about the JCPO, particularly over secondary sanctions and about American subsidiaries. So if they block American subsidiaries from doing work in Iran, it's going to, you know, they can make life difficult. I mean even today, as you know, you know, if you look at it, the Americans are great. They sort of give you, they say you can do business in Iran, but here's the two hundred page manual that you need to read before you, know, you try it. And so this manual can just they can add another hundred pages. So that's all they need to do, by the way. He doesn't need to do a huge amount to make life a lot more difficult. What from the Iranian side, I mean, I've always said that actually, you know, Rahani Rahani needs uh, to get some results there's no doubt about it he, he can do some things himself obviously the other side need to um, open up a bit more although I, I must admit one of the things I'm, I have to you know, uh, disagree in, in one sense I think there are elements of the small print of the JCPOA that the Iranians did not pay enough attention to and one seems to be this idea of having access to the US financial system which I, mean, I, I don't know why they did not include that in the JCPOA um, now if that's fully really restricted 're going to be problems for Khamenei, you see, that the, 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 you have to see what, was, what were his aims. His aims, not Rouhani's aims. His aims really are to stay in power. Okay? His aims are to maintain the revolution and the purity of the revolution. Now, the UN sanctions that were on Iran were proving to be destructive okay? from 2011 onwards, basically. it's when it got really bad. and okay? there was a coalition. And through the genius that was Motaki as foreign secretary in Iran, or foreign minister in Iran, they managed somehow, through, I mean, a real effort, to get the Russians and the Chinese and others to sign up, which would be very difficult normally to do. What they've done now, of course, is they've shattered that coalition. That coalition will not come back. In my view, it would be very, very—I mean, they might, but it would be very unlikely that the Russians, the Chinese, and the other, you know, uh, France, uh, Britain, America, will all agree again on putting sanctions. So he's managed to break that out, it clears the game, they can buy their S-300 missiles, they can do very on of On the other hand, leaving it as it is, makes Rouhani look weak. It weakens him. And of course, Khamenei can go ad nauseum and say, I told you so, the Americans are all crooks, you know, and look at this, it's nonsense, I told you never to trust him, I told you that Rouhani is the Mossad death of the age, you know, there he is, he's trusted in uh, the Americans and look what they've done to him, I told you that. So it enhances his position. I don't think he's financially <laughs> in the pinch. Um, and he keeps Rouhani weak, and, you know, it goes to this notion that why change him, actually? Because he gives a good speech, he keeps the, the liberal side of the country happy in a way, but he, he can't really get, you know, he has two hands tied behind his back. So I, you know, in some ways, you know, I sort of get that actually the status quo in some ways suits them. I mean, there's nothing, you know, why change it? Why go? And from the Iranian point of view, by the way, you sit it out. You've got another eight years, another eight years, or nine years are up. The sanctions start to come off the nuclear industry. They can go ahead with their civil nuclear industry. And they've already said they want an industrial-scale enrichment program. That will be the next crisis, by the way. Okay, don't... I mean, count on it. That I don't think the the, the 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 Europeans and the Americans will will countenance an industrial-scale enrichment program, even though in the agreement that they signed, that's basically what it implies. And Salah he has said it. So what the Iranians have done, basically, is they've traded... You know, what we do, we think in the West, I was talking to colleagues, I said, you know, when we negotiate, what we in the West the value is time. Time is a precious commodity for us. We're always rushing around. In Iran, they have plenty of time. Time is not an issue for Iranians. If it takes us 10 years, great. We'll trade other things and we'll use the time to get what we want. Yeah. And so we always think, and they played it very well in the negotiations, by the way, if you notice Kerry running around saying, I've got to get the deal by this time, yeah, say, say, fine, we can take our time. And so in that sense, I'm not sure, to be honest, that Harmony will do anything. He can play the martyr, and it'll be marvellous, and of course it will look, and everyone will sort of criticize Trump and others. But, uh, you know, it keeps them happy, and people will say, well, the Iran, you know, did what it had to do, and the Americans aren't really dealing with it will ignore the fact that there's all sorts of associated problems going on but you know on the pure transactional element there's probably no reason to it. now I should say that doesn't mean that Trump won't do anything by the way and he might do something the rhetoric might get there might be an incident in the Persian Gulf there might you know there might be a lot of things that will happen and of course that's something we can't foresee and it might cause you know then there would be a reaction I think then maybe the IRGC would want to react but I have to say in previous times what I find quite interesting about the IRGC is when they're faced with such unpredictability as they might do with Trump you'll find that they m- they might back down a little bit more. You know, they're not that stupid, actually. They're certainly not as stupid as Ahmadinejad, I have to say. If it was Ahmadinejad and, are, and Trump, then we'd be in real trouble.
0: <laughs> well, thank you. Please? Um, hi. My name is Simone, and I'm a HHC
2: Candidate in the Artificial Association. I'm... Wondering if you could talk a little bit about the relationship between Rouhani and different classes of the society, because we know that during al time, especially the first term, he really spoke to the lower income classes with the project of meh. um, So I wonder what Rouhani is doing.
1: Well, I mean... You know, what Rouhani does, and I mean, I think others could probably speak to this better than I can, but I think Rouhani really is there to speak not only to the, not really the working, I mean, I don't like this issue of working or middle or other classes and I don't think these, you know, I always think in Iran there's basically a ruling class and the rest, I mean, that's basically, then you know, obviously your income distribution and others. But clearly, you know, Rouhani appeals to a certain, what we might term in a loose term, a middle class, an intellectual middle class. Um... And I think, you know, what you're seeing basically is a lot of people are getting increasingly disappointed with his inability to deliver on various things. I mean, that's the point. There is, it's true to be safe, you know, there is this fact that, you know, you can say the economy at least is in a slightly more stable environment. That's absolutely true, although it's not very dynamic, but it's certainly much more stable. Um, and I think there is this view that, um, that you know, it's, it's better than the alternative, you know, that, you know, if we go, we might go back, you know, that Ahmadinejad is a great bogeyman that they, you know, they, they worry about. But I don't, you know, I don't think he's, you know, he, I don't think he certainly speaks to the, what we call the, the the working class in that sense. And of course the real danger is is that he will, um, uh, you know, he will face a fresh challenge when it comes to this sort of election cycle that's coming uh, coming around now. Um, I mean, if you look at the last in the parliamentary elections, of course, and the and the Assembly of Experts, you can say that. You know that people say he did re- reasonably well in that, and they still appealed. You know, his constituents came out for him. Although, of course, the 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 ambiguity of that election process, of course, is that the people that were elected to the Majlis and to the Assembly of Experts, we don't actually know what their ideological background is. I mean, they're not. It's not very clear. And the Assembly of Experts, in particular, was quite hilarious, actually. If you look at it, you know, they said that the 30 list in Tehran was such a splendid list, but actually, you know, the 16 that sort of came in. Sorry, the 16 that, you know, eight of them were part of, you know both the Socialist Workers' Party and the Tories, you know, at the same time. It was quite an interesting division of responsibility. So they could sort of be, uh, you know, both sides claim victory. So, I I mean, I think in Rouhani's, you know, Rouhani, to my mind, does not have an actual constituency of his own. Rouhani's constituency is really brought to him by Rafsanjani and Khatami. They're the the two pillars. And, you know, as I said in that election, really, the people that brought out the vote for him was Khatami at the end of the day. Um... So I, you know, I, he doesn't have that. He doesn't have, a, 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 in my view anyway, a similar sort of access. He appeals to a certain group of people, but I don't think he has them in a sort of a, uh, I don't think they're his, they're his natural base in that sense. I don't think he has a natural base in that sense. Please. And, um, thanks. What about...
0: Well, would you introduce yourself? Oh, just, just, thank you. you.
1: Cause cause I know <laughs> who you are, but... <laughs> you. <Yeah. laughs> What's your take on Iran's warm relations with... Russia, there's always been a relation... Warming relationship? Yeah. And it's
3: hot. Okay.
1: <laughs> uh, there's always been a relation between Tehran and Moscow. Yeah. There's a yeah. sudden bilateral cooperation and between and Russia. Why? And whether it's a Ruhani's initiative or other parts of the government? Well, you know, where the, you know where the relationship with Russia starts. I mean, in the, in the post-Islamic Republic. This is probably before you were born. But uh, uh, during the Gulf War, for the first Gulf War, that's, yeah, you weren't born. Um, yeah, I, people, some of you will remember you know, Saddam Hussein's air force flew to Tehran you know, for, for refuge. It was one of the best decisions I think the Iraqi air force ever made, wasn't it? I mean, they sort of flew, or Saddam Hussein decided to fly his air force to Tehran for, for safekeeping. Of course, the Iranians all, sort of acquired all these MiGs and everything and thought, ah, oh, they're not bad, you know. And um, the military-industrial complex, really, the relationship with Russia, former Soviet Union Russia, really starts there. Because, remember, uh, Iran's military is basically Western resource, until uh, all that period. During the Iran-Iraq War, they have to find you know resources from all sorts of other places. After that, they get these MiGs and others, they find it very interesting. Now, there is also a much tighter relationship between the IRGC and the sort of the, 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 the oligarchy, shall we say, that emerges in Russia in the 1990s, but particularly in the noughties, and that's solidified by Ahmadinejad. So what you see is a sort of a... A, 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 you know, a, a brotherhood of the local mafias, if I a bit it that way. You know, and they're basically a political, economic link that's very tight. And then you see military engagement. With others for my part, and I've always argued, the relationship between Russia and Iran now is pretty tight, and it has been quite tight really for the last decade. Yeah? it's they're not they don't love each other particularly. I don't see the point. I mean, I talk to Russian colleagues of mine. They say, you know, the, the Russians always say that the only people who lie more than we do are the Iranians. It's not a great way of sort of like. But the, it's not actually very good for the Russians either, but, you know, they, they claim that they're, you know, that it, it's, it's a pragmatic interest. But it may be a pragmatic interest. I mean, I have to say from a historical point of view, I think it's a travesty in some ways, because if you look at Russian relations with Iran over the last 150, 200 years, it's not been great, okay? It's had pros and cons, but it's not, it's certainly not been better than the Anglo-American relationship with Iran, okay? But nonetheless, this is the way we are. Post-Soviet Union, the Russians need a friend, the Iranians uh, need a friend, and there is a sort of a, uh, a much tighter relationship growing up, which has now seen us in a situation where, as we know, you know, the Iranians granted the Russians access rights to air bases in Iran the first time a foreign power had that, that base, although they got very sensitive about it when the Russians bragged about it, but nonetheless, we know that apparently that, that resource is available to them. Now, this is, this is more... Uh, to my mind, than simply a pragmatic relationship. This is something deeper and when you're having uh, Russian or Iranian troops being shipped over to Syria or whatever in Russian or Iranian planes and whatever this is a much tighter relationship And I think you see that and I think probably Putin plays the game well with harmony and they they sort of have a uh, They have a mutual understanding. So I think it has its origins uh, in a practical sense back to 1990 1991, it's bound on a sort of a mutual dislike and disrespect, or not disrespect, or dislike, or uh, distrust, I should say, of the United States. Um, they, they share a conspiratorial worldview. It all reinforces and builds into each other. So, you know, it's on a number of different planes, military, political, intellectual, whatever you want to call it. Even though, I have to say, if you look at it in a very practical sense, the 1990s, you know, the Russians are the first people, basically, to dump the Iranians in it, if, if it's in their interest. You know, you look at the Caspian, you look at you know aspects of the sanctions, for instance. I mean, the Russians had to accept the sanctions to go through. They haven't always backed it. But, you know, Lavrov and others have played it uh, um, reasonably well, and I think that relationship now is, is much much tighter. It is, to my mind, one of the failures of Western foreign policy in that sense that we've actually ceded that territory to the Russians. Not just in Iran, I think probably in, in large swathes of the Middle East. And the Russians have done it on the cheap. I mean. If you look at that, I mean, this is, again, the way the journalists have just got, yeah, Did you, I, you remember the aircraft carrier going through the channel? And they said, that's Armada. I mean, did you see the amount of black smoke coming out of that thing? And it also had its own tug. you only want to wear that it had its own tug in case it breaks down. This aircraft carrier is ancient. And yet the way the BBC were reporting it, one would have thought this great Spanish Armada had been coming through the channel. It's ancient stuff. I mean, this is not, but they're doing it because, you know, Obama's red lines don't amount to much. The worry is that, you know, Trump might have too many red lines. you know, this just...
0: is... Please.
3: Hi, um, my name is Thomas Schumann, a recent LSE graduate. I was wondering, with uh, Trump's election and possible, I mean, definitely rapprochement with Russia, do you think that will change anything in terms of Saudi-Iranian relations, with regards, to, well, of relations mm-hmm. <laughs> with regards to what's happening in Syria and in Yemen? Or do you think that... Well, I,
1: I mean, I, you see, again, these are all these unknowns that we, we just don't know what the situation with them... Um, um, uh, Trump and Putin is going to be. I mean, obviously, the, I love the idea that the Russians all applauded in the Duma you know, and, and Trump won. Um, it's difficult to know what that relationship will be. Um, I think there's a, there's a view that, you know, obviously we sort of feel that basically it may be warmer. It certainly would be warmer than if Clinton had been present. Um, but the trouble is you just don't know what the American posture is going to be. Because I don't think John Bolton or even Gingrich who has been touted as possible Secretary of State aren't necessarily going to be people who are going to feel very warm towards the Russians. Yeah. So we have, to, we have to wait and see really on that and see what happens. Um, I think the Saudi one is interesting, of course, because I think the Saudis probably invested quite a bit of time and money on a Clinton victory, and that may not go down well, obviously. Um, but, you know, we, we have to, we, I think we have to wait and see how that pans out. I think a lot of people in the region, um, including the Iranians, shouldn't take anything for granted
0: We'll just wait and see
2: how that pans kind out. Of Thank you. Please. I'm Lily Hilton, a student at Haberdasher's Ask for Girls. Mm. And I was wondering, I heard the Deputy Chief of Staff for Police Affairs, Henry Dabry Tollaby, say that Brexit presented a historic opportunity for Iran. Yeah, yeah. And I was wondering whether you thought there would be any direct benefit or disadvantage for Iran from Britain?
1: You know, the interesting thing is, I don't know why he thinks it's a great opportunity. I mean, I, you know, there were a couple of reactions. I was quite, I mean, of course, you know, the standard Iranian reaction was that this was a great coming plan, and the, the, the way I tried to convince colleagues in Iran that it wasn't. I mean, he said, no, no, although well, I have to say, now maybe it was, you know, now Trump, maybe we did foresee a Trump victory, and, you know, we will go to the front of the queue after, but it's, um, none of my jokes are working tonight. <laughs> uh, but uh, he always laughs, but he's obviously not now. The, um, <laughs> I, know, it's done. Um, I don't know what they think that the opportunity for Brexit for them. I, I, unless they're really... Th- I mean, there have been some comments. I don't think they've thought about it enormously, to be honest, but some comments that this will weaken Europe or reduce Europe's clout. Um, I mean, one person, actually, I did read, said that this is fantastic because Britain is regaining her independence. I mean, I, okay, you okay? Know. I, but I don't really know, actually, if they've thought through exactly what this means. Um... I assume on a number of them it means that they think Europe will have a weaker hold. But I have to say, you know, if you look at Mogherini's approach to Iran, certainly now, I mean, she's very positive. I don't even get much more positive than that at the moment, within the context of what Europe can and cannot do. So I don't know what they think that Brexit will mean for them. I don't think they actually really... I mean, to be honest, I don't really know what Brexit will mean for You know, I mean, so what, what, what do we know and why they think it's an opportunity? I mean... Um, other than uh, in a sort of geopolitical sense, but even then, it's not clear. It's not clear at all.
0: Thank you. Some other question. Hey, please. No, no uh, you please. Yeah. Hi, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm uh, uh, <laughs> a SOAS master's student. I know that you think. Uh, some
2: uh,
1: <laughs> um, I know we think that Muhammad Ali will have a good. A, real, you know, a nice re-election, but who do you think the regime is going to allow to campaign against him? Well, you know, I've, you know, I've sort of had this sort of view that in a sense, you know, Rohani is, is uh, um, you know, a weakened Rohani is, 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 is better for Khamenei. They're better the devil you know and you keep him there in his spine. I mean, who they could find to campaign against him um, you know, in some ways, not allowing Ahmadinejad to campaign against them is a good move, because so, Hamid is a very divisive figure, and it would might possibly split that sort of vote. But there is the possibility that they can get any number of these sort of um, uh, what we would call a sort of a centre right by Iranian standards. You know, although sort of, I think in some ways Rahani is already centre right. But you know, I don't know. You know, one of these, um, uh, someone like Bok or someone might step up to the plate or something. I mean, again, I think a lot of these are for show in a way. And they'll, they'll obviously have to have someone running against him. Um, I think the attacks on him because of the economy would mean that some of them would find, find an opportunity to do so. I mean, I tend to sort of agree with you that I don't think it's necessarily going to be a shoo-in for him. Um, people think that. People assume that. And I think in actual fact it's probably become a bit more difficult with the Trump presidency. They might find someone who they'll think is a bit more <coughs> Um But it's not, you know, entirely clear who it would be at the moment. Because if, you, you know, if you're being clever by the Iranian standards, you would keep that fairly secret anyway for the time being, because you wouldn't want to reveal your hand until later in the day uh, so as to minimise any of the sort of political fallout that might happen in the, sort of the pre-campaign. I mean, the interesting thing about the last two or three Iranian elections, uh, certainly the last presidential election, was that it had quite a long lead in, both, both of them actually, 2009-2013, there was a sort of a, almost a six-month primary moment when people are debating, is he going to run, is he not going to run, will Khatami run, will Rafsanjani run, will and then finally, you know, comes through quite late in the day. You know, there's a suggestion that they might pick someone to run uh, uh, against Rohani quite late in the day, who will either be a tokenistic thing, I mean, it could be tokenistic, or they'll find someone who they think will be able to um, act galvanise some popular support. At the end of the day, you know, the system still requires, the system still requires <laughs> someone who can draw a measure of popular support out. So um, I think it depends on whether they gauge Rahani's, quote, popularity, in a sense, has decreased enough that they can challenge him and bring someone in. But I get the sense that Khamenei would really like a very, very quiet time of it. So, you know, if Rahani's continuing as he is, you know, why not leave him there and you can go through the show? I mean, I do think at the end of the Iranian elections are good thi- theatre. They're good theatre. And, you know, you put forward a good piece of theatre and that's... You know, but nothing really fundamentally. Unf- Unfortunately, I'd say so nothing really fundamentally
4: will change at that level. Please. Ala yeah. Yousef, uh, in a previous incarnation, I was head of Egypt's diplomatic mission to Tehran. Ah. Uh, well, thank you very much. This is very useful, and uh, I think it will be even more useful by January when we know more about yeah, the, yeah. the new administration and also in build-up towards the elections in, in However, um, I was asking, I don't have a crystal ball. Nobody has. uh, Nobody is mortal as well. Is immortal, sorry. Uh, So thinking of what sort of president the establishment would want to see to oversee the transition in case of uh, the disappearance of of the
1: what sort of president well again i mean i think that's actually i think you're quite right to say one of the things that i haven't really mentioned of course is that i think in the background to all this is the fact that uh we think in the next three to four years certainly there will be a transitional period and the leader will you know will be replaced and i think that's partly what dictates the idea that they want a sort of a very stable sort of presidential system in place now of course you know who chooses the new supreme leader is ultimately uh constitutional yeah. terms the Assembly of experts and, and, and but also other elements that will choose I don't think the president will necessarily have such a big uh, influence on, on, on who comes out other than also just maintaining that sort of
4: uh, yeah I mean what, what, you, what you, kind do? of figure do you want to see there? someone who will not uh, well, be disruptive, uh, even As, a, as president, right? yeah. I mean. yeah, as exactly. president.
1: yeah, Yeah, I mean, and I think in Rouhani in some ways would be, he is quite suitable for that. I mean, he's not, a, you know, he's not uh, a bad, you certainly don't want an Ahmadinejad figure who would be very, very uh, um, destabilizing, arguably destabilizing. So I think, you know, that's one of the things in the back of the mind. And I, I you know, I think the great, you know, elephant in the room in that sense is the succession to the leader which most people are, you know, there has been some talk about it in Iran, obviously it's, it's died down a bit now, Uh, goodness knows, you know, I think, I don't know what the prognosis is on how long people think he's going to live, but obviously as you say, you know, even he's not immortal, so it's, you know, it's, um, you know, what what you're really thinking of, I suppose, is a political system that's at least calm to manage the transition from one leader to the next. And of course, I think a number of people have written on this about who the likely possible successors to him might be. Um, Of course, the argument has been that we hopefully go and see a very liberal or moderate leader or someone a bit more pragmatic. I think there's also been some chit-chat that Rouhani might be seeking it himself. I think that's very unlikely. Um, I think he's been saying that, which is pretty reckless, but anyway. I, I don't believe it myself. I think there are three or four candidates that may be up, one of them being Saadir Larajani, of course. Uh, I don't think any of them are particular. I mean, this is the, the, the unfortunate thing, as people say, is that the new leader may not necessarily be as liberal as the current leader. Okay? Now, what, one of the more interesting things about that, of course, is that any new leader would have to take time to consolidate their position. And that may mean that you know there will be enough turmoil on that level to keep the rest of it uh, much calmer, but yeah, I mean, I think the argument was last uh when was it March or whatever that you know with the Assembly of experts and whatever that you would be in a position to have a group of people who would be able to sort of like basically elect a more moderate leader, and I think that was one of the gambles and i mean it, I have to say the Obama administration has stayed quite a lot on i mean it's 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 I don't know who's advising it, or was advising it on domestic Iranian politics, but uh, I think they they gambled rather a lot on a lot of changes happening in a favourable way. Um, Maybe the recent election in the United States might be a good lesson for them, that things don't always change in the direction you want. So um, yeah, I'm not so sure that whoever succeeds Harmony is going to be a better thing. you know, we'll have to see. Well, like the candidates that they're listening at the moment—none I mean, of them are particularly, none of them are particularly encouraging, I have to say. But yeah, you know, they're not necessarily worse, but they're not—I don't think necessarily better.
0: Thank you, please.
1: Um, I'm a student, at the University of London. Uh, my question is about the recent
3: Kurdish insurgency in Iran. Uh, mm. The Democratic Party of Iranian Kurdistan has ended an almost two-decade ceasefire with indigenous took up arms against the
1: Iranian government. There has been a number of clashes between the Kurdish militia and the Revolutionary Guards. And my question is, how do you think the Rouhani's administration will sort of use such insurgency and what measures they will take to contain them? Well, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't know enough about what's been happening, but obviously I heard that these things have developed. I mean, if, if, if the Rouhani administration goes along the line of every success of the Iranian administration pre and post revolution, but certainly in the 20th and 21st century, is they'll deal with it in a fairly sort of, uh, with, you know, with, with a fairly singular idea of what the national interest is, which means probably quite harshly. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is where the nationalist you know, ideology in Iran has a lot of traction. The idea, and what worries them, what panics them really, is this idea that Iran will be uh, a faction you know, will really be divided and they will see this. It's always been a worry for them, just as it has been for the Turks, or so they less so than the Turks, but it has been a worry for them that you're going to see these separatist movements either in Balochistan or Azerbaijan or whatever, or now in Kurdistan, and I think it's an issue for them. I don't think it's actually as serious an issue for them as it has been for other regional powers, but you're right, you know, it's, it's something that they, you know, um, it's slightly, I suppose, um, diminishes, I suppose, this, 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 this uh, narrative that they have that they're completely in control of everyone certainly on their borders and what's going on in Iraq and that sort of, you know, these things are flaring up. But on the basis of previous practice, then I suspect that it will not be a, you know, they're not going to offer them a referendum. Either, you know? I mean, they're, they're probably sending the troops fairly quick. If it gets, you know, they will come down, essentially, will happen? I suspect. I mean, we have to see what happens and then how, how big it becomes. But I suspect on past, uh, past practice, that's what will happen.
0: So I would just... Take the last uh, question, please.
1: Yeah, go for Freddie John. on. Freddie, I used to Yeah, a yeah and I do. Very
3: nice. <laughs> 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 um, we talked a well, it's on the paper, we talked a lot about uh, the implications of who we run the country, the leaders and, and their implications for the election, what will happen next. Um I was very energized by the, the, everything that happened with the Green Revolution. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. kinda of pot up stuff. I know that historians famously
1: can't conflict the future, but is there anything that we can say not about the kind of kings and queens, but kind of the social, social in Iran today that is, is interesting to be having? Like, when's the Arab Spring coming back? I well, I mean, I don't know. If the Arab well, it wouldn't be the Arab Spring. <laughs> um, the Persian Sun uh, You know, the great paradox of Iran, as those well of us who are that politics is always trying to catch up with. Society. So there's a lot of quite interesting social change going on in Iran. Has been for you know decades. Um, travelers to Iran, you know, those students, whatever, go particularly to Tehran, but also the other major cities. Will find that you know, you, you find a much more uh, progressive, shall we say, social environment that you might have anticipated. It's one of the reasons why people come away from Iran, obviously, very almost quite confused or pleasantly surprised or whatever. But the fact is, the, 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 the tragedy, in my view, of, the, of this sort of political development in Iran is that the politics have always been quite, you know, have always tried to sort of uh, contain or, 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 or repress that social urge. Yeah. And the question is, is, you know, how long can you manage that? And periodically, obviously, it hasn't worked very well. Um, if you go from past experience, then we can expect some sort of social upheaval every decade. So, you know, we had one in, obviously, 1979... I think the war probably exhausted people for 1989, but we had something in 1999, then we had something in 2009, so we can now look forward to 2019. Um, I have to say that the, the the repression that took place after 2009 was pretty severe. Okay, It was pretty severe, and of course the arrest of dual nationals and stuff is a continuation of that process in some ways. It's to create a degree of uncertainty and it's to create a degree of instability in that sort of social environment. But um, you have to say that for the reasons that we discussed earlier, in terms of the economy, uh, social aspiration, uh, the needs to connect, and you know, I often think that Iran is is a much more connected country than people think. Uh, as you say, only the hardliners in the United States and in Iran think that Iran is cut off. You know, I mean, it's a very well connected. People are very connected on social media and other things, not necessarily legally, but nonetheless they are. So you know, one has to sort of think that these sort of um, social intellectual movements, aspects of globalisation whatever you want to call it, although globalisation is now a dirty word but you know, it's this sort of thing that is going to have an impact. Now one of the things that we were discussing earlier um, is you know, even these uh, uh, upsurge in nationalist sentiment in Iran and what's going on uh, around these demonstrations in Pasargad and others, these are relatively small scale by the way, I wouldn't want to exaggerate, you're talking about several thousand people, but it is nonetheless quite interesting what's uh, what's going on, the mood music, um, some of these sentiments, the fact that, and I think the clearest sign that there's a little bit of anxiety among the government is that they're arresting
3: people for it.
1: So you've got to say that if you were a a betting man, you would say that something, you know, at the end of the day, what you're seeing in Iran is a sort of a race between the government and society. If the government and the repressive apparatus can maintain a control and always keep an eye, and they're obviously very paranoid about it at the moment, they can keep a lid on it. And as I said, after 2009, they did quite a systematic job of dismantling those sort of elements of sort of the, the mass movement elements that existed. But there is a sort of a tenacious ability among Iranians that they will, I think, in time, obviously, coalesce again, reorganize, and things will develop. And there will be crunch times. Um, this politics of managing change, if you will, I think the Iranians, in some ways, the Iranian governments have been reasonably good at doing it. That's not the right word, so reasonably effective, I think, at doing that. I don't think they've been good at doing it, but they've been effective at least at keeping a lid on things. But at the end of the day, I think something will have to give. I think something will have to give, and they won't be able to maintain this forever. At the moment, you know, one of the things that helps them is that the entire region is in a bit of a mess. So, you know, they say to their more progressive elements inside, you don't cause trouble, look what happens. You know, look at freedom. I mean, this is what so, you know, obviously. While the region is in turmoil, it's less attractive for it. But ultimately, you know, one has to think that there are, uh, uh, there are consequences socially, that are t- development socially that are taking place, that will have an effect on the political structures eventually. I just think my, myself, I don't have the optimism I had in 2000, to be honest. Um, I think it will clearly be a slower process, and it might be a more traumatic process than people have accepted. Yeah, the, the, these people who are entrenched in power are very, very, very reluctant to let go of that situation. But, you know, it could, you know, things could give. Things will, could give. And if they're sensible in government, they will adapt it. They will adapt it. That's the secret of it. But, you know, I think it will, Yeah, there will be elements of push and shove that will happen. So let's see, you know, 2019. Let's see if it happens on time. But there, <laughs> might be you know, there might be things that will develop by then, and I, you know, don't
0: underestimate the capacity of the Iranians to cause trouble. So, I, I think that, um, I really thank, thank Professor Ansari, but uh, before I, I need to announce that the next Middle East Central LAC lecture will be on Wednesday 23rd of November. Also in this room is Marisa Foys gives an in- overview of Algerian nationalism, so just keeping the nationalists from the 1920s to 1950s. I really thank Professor Ansari for this really interesting and in-depth lecture on the situation. Thanks, Ali, really, very much, and thank you all, and show the appreciation to Professor Ansari, please.